This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. This week, New Zealand's biggest newspaper company launched a new video-on-demand platform. Our biggest phone company announced it'll be streaming English soccer as well as the Rugby World Cup. And our second biggest phone company launched a new device to further computerise your TV set. This is convergence, the digitally driven shift that means that all major media are overlapping more than ever to attract us. This week, top bosses told a conference on convergence. They can't all survive in the same space for much longer, and we'll talk to two of them about that. Also, why a distressing death was dressed up as clickbait, and how the warrior's woes sparked a spot of four-letter fury. Fairly filthy, yep. He doesn't get too animated, but he's pointing and he's doing everything you would expect. He's banging his hand! He's an, oh, he's an angry man tonight! But first, in media coverage of political party conferences these days, the focus is often on the leaders and the policies they pick to promote, and not the actual party members who gather once a year to be heard. But it was fear of the media getting amongst their members last weekend which prompted the Greens leaders to shut the door. The Greens displaying a united front at their annual conference today. But just outside... It was anything but. He conceded publicly that he gave concessions to the National Party without even getting the support for the bill. And to me, that's just a failure of political negotiation. Jack MacDonald, the former Greens candidate and top advisor, rebelling against James Shaw as he leaves those roles. That was TVNZ's Benedict Collins reporting on ructions at the Greens conference, or strictly speaking, outside the conference, last weekend. The Greens co-leader called that defection a distraction, and one news said it overshadowed the entire event. And Benedict Collins saw it this way. The Greens did their best to manage the media and try to control the message at this annual conference. And the attacks on James Shaw definitely were not part of that script. What they wanted people to be talking about was their announcement that they've done their homework and are now ready to start negotiating with the government on their rent-to-own scheme. But that wasn't the effort to control the media that Benedict Collins was talking about there. In an article in advance of the conference, the Otago Daily Times quoted the party leader James Shaw as saying this. These opportunities only come along once a year, and it's a chance to reconnect with our members, let them know about some of the work that they may not have heard of through the media, and to gear up for what's next. And that sounds very positive, except for that bit about the media not paying enough attention to the Greens' work. But the Greens actually kept the media at arm's length in Dunedin last weekend for fear, it turns out, of what they might make of the attending members. The issue was raised in advance by RNZ's Charlie Drever in the Focus on Politics show last week. Yeah, we, I mean, that was basically our experience. We had that kind of year after year, and in the end we just got sick of it because um, it, we don't feel that it... Um, particularly fairly reflected the actual kind of, you know, main body of our members and supporters who are just kind of regular Kiwis. So so next year we might have a few more events that we can attend. Well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. So what was it that James Shaw was talking about there? Well, News Hub knew perfectly well. Shaw shut down the conference to media amid fears a Green Party caricature that harks back to Morris dancing could emerge. Political reporter Jenna Lynch has the story. And Jenna Lynch also had the Morris dancing. People, uh, caricature about us was that you know we could be seen as sort of unstable or um, uh, you know uh, kind of um, not not of the mainstream. Perhaps non-mainstream things like that now infamous Morris dancing at conference. Stereotype the Morris dancing. What, what, what? Yeah, I think that that image got played on television for about twenty years after the event, um, and we got fairly sick of it. 
What James Shaw was sick of specifically was the media looking for Morris dancers and fringe dwellers on the green scene showing up in the 6pm news, and he was backed up in that by his co-leader, Marama Davidson, on Three's News Hub Nation show the day before. So you do have your big Simon. party pants on and you are willing just to be open and transparent. <laughs> Yeah, of course. I mean, we, you know, the, like I said, we've been running our AGMs this way for uh, many years now, and there's been no change. All right. I mean, it's been really this, our conferences are really important for us to engage with our members. It's a priority for us, and also the majority of the uh, media agencies happen to be here. But media being there is not the same as being present when the members actually debate the issues. And James Shaw's claim that the media were actively looking for flaky followers for cheap stories was not actually backed up. So are the media too keen to stereotype the Greens in this way still? And if they did, would it really undermine them? Well, the AM show didn't cover the Greens conference last Monday, but in chit-chat about public transport, host Mark Richardson called them untrustworthy weirdos, mostly, it seems, because of their support for cycleways. That's the same Mark Richardson, incidentally, who recently declared on the AM show that he'd like to be a National Party candidate in the next election. And while he was joking, sort of, over on TBNZ1, the breakfast show was being presented by a former Green candidate from the last election, Hayley Holt. Unfortunately for the Greens, the conference was overshadowed by dissent from within their ranks. To close the show last Monday, Breakfast brought in Pacifica activist Felicia Brown-Acton and broadcaster and pundit Mary Lambie, who between them weren't actually sure whether the media were banned or not. <laughs> We've been talking about this with, with enormous alacrity, actually, in the green room, and it's, um, I, I don't know if we came to a conclusion regarding the Greens, but I think hiding is not, not the answer. But you were actually setting me straight, bless you, that the media wasn't technically banned. No, and I think, um, to James Shaw's point, as he has been stating, and I found it quite interesting actually listening to every uh, journalist ask the exact question, and he's responded, well, nothing's changed. No one was banned. Everything's the same. Um, and no one's responded with anything other than OK. But clearly, Felicia Brown-Acton hadn't read RNZ's political editor Jane Patterson on the RNZ website last Monday. She said it was the most closed-down annual conference in recent memory for any political party. Only two speeches will be open to the media, along with a world cafe, speed dating for ideas, according to James Shaw. Even then, reporters have been told this is an off-the-record event, with no cameras or photos, and any members having to give explicit permission before being interviewed. And exploring that notion of stereotyping the Greens as hippies back on TBNZ Breakfast Show, Mary Lambie suddenly remembered she was talking to a former Green candidate. He's worried about the caricature stuff, mm. you know, the Jesus jandals in the middle of the Dunedin winter and, you know, who's, who in the media is going to hunt out the mung bean soup and all these sorts of things. And if he is trying to actually recreate the perception and the media, yeah, I'll double track, I'm looking at you just thinking, of course you stood for the Greens, didn't you? I'm looking at you, I'm looking at you thinking... That was a, a year Mary Lambie wound up on Monday by saying it seemed to her the media did seem too keen to paint the Greens as either sooty or hippie. Maybe it's time for the media to pull its finger out, do you think, and to actually not sit with, with the, the caricature and hunt out reinforcement of the caricature of the wild sort of crystal dream catchery types, mm. but to actually find policy and to find change if, if it's there. But certainly it wasn't helped by the resignation of, of this Jack no. dude. Oh, cause, cause Jack McDonald. Yeah, so what's he saying? He's saying, oh, it's become too centralist. I still want to be at the extreme end. That's what he's saying. Isn't he?
But while walkaway candidate Jack MacDonald did say the party was too centrist, he never said he was extreme. Now, the tensions are real between ecologically driven Green Party members and those pushing social justice issues. Likewise, among those who think the party's compromised too much now that they're in the government. Yet when the Greens held their get-together in the Hutt Valley back in 2014, Stuff Political correspondent at the time, Andrea Vance, said the Greens had become a thoroughly mainstream modern political machine. Once upon a time, Green Party conferences provided plenty of quirky material for journalists. Famously, there was the Morris dancing, there were always weird beards, occasionally sandals, but now the green machine is so slick, so corporate, the best I could come up with was an animal print mohair waistcoat. On her 9 to noon weekly politics slot, Catherine Ryan lamented the Greens media shutout this year and harked back to her own days as a political editor in years gone by. I remember going to party conferences where you were allowed to go into all the remit discussions and some of them were bonkers. I mean, some of the remits that proposed. <laughs> but it was healthy and you saw a political party in action. You saw activists in action. You saw representatives not being managed but fronting up to their party and ideas were discussed, including in the media. And, and later... But Catherine's guest from the left, lobbyist Neil Jones, spoke as one who'd actually tried to manage the media at Labour Party political conferences. In my experience, I, I, I know that I won't make any friends here in the media, but I don't think they have the maturity of understanding party structures. I remember Andrew Little, when he was leader, would have to answer whenever some member put up a remit for something crazy in the, in the regions. He'd have to shut it down and promise it wasn't going to be Labour Party policy and you know back down on proposals, and it was complete nonsense. All right, it's all our fault, I accept. <laughs> And Neil Jones was right there that questioning the media's maturity is not really the way to win their hearts and minds. Well, these days, the political party conference coverage focuses heavily on the leadership of the parties and whatever big policies they decide to roll out while they've got the media's attention. Or, as the Greens discovered this weekend, any disruption that's time to capitalise on that. But it's the one time that the party members have their say, and it's a pity not to hear more of them in the media. And now that the Green Party is part of the government, it's surely time to focus on what the members are thinking and saying and not what they wear or how they dance. Hi, I'm Paddy Buckley. I'm Head of Video Products at Stuff. And I'm Carol Hirschfeld and I'm Head of Video, Audio and Content Partnerships. And we're here to tell you about Stuff's newest product. It is Play Stuff. Play Stuff is New Zealand's new home for video. It's going to be both part of the website, you'll be able to go there from stuff.co.nz, but also going to be standalone new mobile applications. It really is a place where we will showcase our best video journalism, but we'll also give our audience, for the first time, entertainment video. That was a promotional video for Stuff's new video service, Play Stuff, offering more than 10,000 videos to stream from sources such as the BBC, TVNZ, Reuters, Vice.com and Stuff itself. Now, some of these are simple short news reports, but others are movie-length documentaries and factual features. Stuff's editor-in-chief, Patrick Crudson, described Play Stuff like this to us. Play Stuff is a news and entertainment platform. The best news video that Stuff produces will be available on Play Stuff, and we will feature news and other videos from Play Stuff on Stuff the website as well. The, t- the two will work hand in hand. 
Now, this free online service is not to be confused with Stuff Picks, Stuff's video-on-demand service offering Hollywood movies for paying subscribers, one of a suite of different businesses that Stuff is now operating online to make a buck. And one reason this former newspaper company has former broadcast executives like those two now on the staff. But it's not long ago that Stuff was a much simpler company, a newspaper publisher called Fairfax Media. Now, similarly, the forerunner of Spark was Telecom, dedicated to phones and phone lines. Today, Spark still sells you phones, but it's also in the online video game big time. A huge step forward for telecommunications company Spark. It's made its first move into sports content production and revealed a four-year deal with the International Hockey Federation. In doing so, it's secured the broadcasting rights for events such as the Hockey World Cup. That was breaking news last November, and no disrespect to the Hockey World Cup, but Sparks moved a long way since then, doing a deal to stream the Rugby World Cup live in October. And they're using that to sell broadband connections. Get New Zealand's only broadband with a free Rugby World Cup 2019 tournament pass. And to sell mobile phones. Get New Zealand's only mobile phones with a free Rugby World Cup 2019 tournament pass. When you buy any mobile... And last week, Spark announced that the English Premier League football will also be exclusively live on its sports app too. This week, Spark's Chief Financial Officer David Chalmers, who's also the company's executive lead for sport, told an industry conference in Auckland the work it's doing. The conference was organised by the Telecom Users Association of New Zealand, or Two ANS for short, and it was all about the digital age phenomenon that's made all of this possible, convergence. Go back 30 years and telecommunications and television were very different businesses. A tiny number of companies offered different services using different technologies, run on different networks. The former mostly involved two-way voice communication or phone calls in plain English and telecom was effectively the only game in town for that. You could send a fax or a picture or two down the line but even that was pushing the technology of the times. Likewise, broadcasting back then was strictly one-way stuff, signals sent via transmitters to aerials to our homes over publicly regulated airwaves. The proliferation of satellites heralded the intersection of telecoms, TV and broadcasting, but it was digital technology which really started mashing the two together to the point where they're now running on the same networks online and providing similar services. All this convergence means our big media companies former newspaper publishers and broadcasters and phone companies are all now operating in similar territory online. And they're all up in each other's business alongside international online media providers like subscriber service Netflix, as well as Facebook and Google-owned YouTube offering unlimited hours of video for free. Now, all this has changed the game for New Zealand's news media companies now operating in a crowded and overlapping market, and fears for the future of some of them were aired at that two ands gathering this week, the Digital Convergence Symposium. Technology writer Sarah Putt was there, and on Thursday she summed up the challenge for all our major media companies on 9 to noon like this. Not only is it we have all these global players that are hugely well-funded and in um and resourced, we've also got to deal with trying to get this new audience, which doesn't necessarily want to tune into the six o'clock news. So lots to think about.
And there is also a lot to think about for the government and the state agencies which fund broadcasting and media. Late last month, the Broadcasting Minister Chris Farfoy and the New Zealand On Air Chief Executive Jane Wrightson met behind closed doors with news executives from news media outfits including TVNZ, NZME, MediaWorks and RNZ. They heard from the Deputy Chair of Australia's media regulator, the ACCC, which has just published a big report about the sustainability of media there in a similarly converged and competitive market. Now, Chris Farfoy has already said that he fears for the future of some news media companies and some may not survive long as things stand currently, but it remains to be seen just how his government responds to the media companies' problems here as he rethinks the government policy. Michael Boggs is the chief executive at NZME, short for New Zealand Media and Entertainment, which owns half the country's radio stations, including News Talk ZB, and also publishes the New Zealand Herald and other local papers in the North Island. Last year, a long-running and costly bid to merge with Stuff failed because the competition watchdog said it would be anti-competitive. Well, this week, Michael Boggs told the Telecom Users Association conference consolidation was inevitable. So what exactly does that mean for them? and for the public. Yeah, I absolutely think there needs to be consolidation. And, you know, I shared today, I guess, some of our story with going to the Commerce Commission where we look to be able to merge with stuff, and, and much of that was around creating the future runway for journalism in New Zealand. So if I look back from when we started that process with the Commerce Commission, uh, 150 uh, journalists have gone from the regional markets of New Zealand. That's nearly 30% of the journalists are no longer working in the industry, and that's not a great trend. Yeah, but how much of that's to do with uh, the Commerce Commission denying those two companies, including yours, permission to merge? I mean, you have shareholders that uh, want to get a return, and if some journalists have to go to make the bottom line, well, they'll wear that. Uh, it's part of the model, right? And, and so that is the model we're currently operating to, obviously. And so I think without consolidation, that puts more pressure on the New Zealand industry as a whole. You know, so not just ourselves or stuff, but you know, many other media players. Because of this convergence we're talking about, these are companies that all overlap now in the same when you talk about the service to the customer. So of the five or six big media names like NZME, MediaWorks, Stuff, RNZ, for example, I mean, which are the ones that will have to give way or be folded into other ones? What does it actually mean when you say consolidation? And so I think that will yet to play out. You know, I, I can't sit here and predict what that is, but I think there will be less players in the future. We're obviously seeing uh, telecommunications companies enter the media industry as well, uh, so there will be some form of consolidation in the marketplace. Only a few of these companies do news and journalism. Is news vulnerable in this environment. Could news just disappear from companies where once it was the core? Well, I think news absolutely is the core of our businesses, but I think, to your point, it is vulnerable. And, uh, you know, the 150 regional journalists that will have, you know, gone from the market over the last few years, that must mean that people locally are not being held to account as much. The local stories aren't being told. And I don't think that's good for New Zealand. I don't think that's good for our communities. And I don't think that's good for our future. I mean, you've had to do a bit of that at NZME as well, journalism and news gathering in, in, the, in the regions where you still have staff mostly in the North Island. But, I mean, if your shareholders give you a hard time, if the share price drops a bit and you have to pretty much stop doing news, is that ever likely to happen? So the thing that we're really focused on is what is the content that really is quite local, 
What is it that's live? Because that's what we can cover. And then we actually choose secondarily which platform to put it on. So it's likely to be that it might go to digital first. Now we have a decision as to whether it's to free digital or to paid digital. It's then likely that it might actually go to radio next. It might go to News Talk ZB, for example. And then later in the day, it's likely that we'll then start to think about, is that a piece of news that should go into the Herald? So it actually is one newsroom now. Broadcasting is still kind of privileged by the government in terms of the public spend on it. You've got RNZ entirely funded from the public purse. TVNZ is state-owned and, uh, as we heard today from its chief executive, has uh, been told, don't worry about returning us a dividend, just put it back into content creation. Are you wanting to see a change in that, given that everybody's doing similar kinds of work online these days and it's all crossing over? Firstly, we're obviously, as much as possible, trying to stand on our own two feet, create our own uh, content that uh, we can put on our platforms and monetise. But, you know, congratulations to New Zealand on air. They have said we will fund other organisations other than broadcast TV or some radio if you've got a story yeah. to tell. And so that gives us a chance to access some of that public money. Uh, I do find it a little bit ironic, though, of, um, you know, RNZ over the years has said uh, we haven't had a budget increase for years, so please, government, please um, give us some more money, and the government's done that. Um, I wish I had someone to go to to say, actually, I haven't had as much advertising over the last few years, so could uh, someone please give me some more advertising? You know, it's, uh... But the fact of revenue falling at commercial media organisations isn't a rationale for a corresponding drop in public broadcasting. If anything, it would be a rationale for more to make up the difference. And, and, and that's what I'm pleased as well, that, again, RNZ and New Zealand on the air are looking to how they can help support that uh, local journalism, which is so important for our future. And hiring new journalists with revenue from the paywall where you can. Who have you been able to hire on the back of the income coming in? Um, there absolutely has been some uh, recent announcements and there'll be some further announcements, so uh, I can guarantee you we are in the market hiring people. But what, uh, for what kind of journalism? What, uh, so what are you going to put it into? So the, um, the things that we're actually seeing the most most growth from a listener and people actually really wanting that in-depth journalism. Firstly, it's uh, business. Secondly, it's politics. And thirdly, it's sport. That was NZME's Chief Executive Michael Boggs talking to me last Tuesday, shortly after speaking at the Digital Convergence Symposium in Auckland, organised by the Telecom Users Association of New Zealand. Now on stage earlier at the same event, and airing some of the same concerns, was Kevin Kenrick, the Chief Executive at TVNZ, and the longest-serving media Chief Executive currently in this country. Now as a state-owned broadcaster, part of TVNZ's mission has been to pay a dividend to the Crown from its profits, something it's struggled to do in recent years. Its most recent Statement of Performance Expectations document says that TVNZ does not anticipate paying a dividend in the foreseeable future. Commercial rivals have struggled with this too. MediaWorks hasn't paid shareholders a dividend in years. NZME have said they won't be paying one this year. And analysts say Sky TV will likely cut theirs this year too. But as a state-owned outfit, that raises more questions, some of which I put to Kevin Kenrick this week after his speech. A huge increase in the number of content services that are available for consumers doesn't increase the marketing budgets of New Zealand advertisers and it doesn't increase the discretionary spend of New Zealand households. But ultimately, unless that market grows, then it would inevitably contract as well. So what do you think is most vulnerable? I mean, for example, you've got two big broadcasting companies and you've got TVNZ and MediaWorks in the television area. You've got uh, NZME that has a big radio holding like MediaWorks, so basically three in this kind of audiovisual broadcasting area, if you look at it like that. Do you think they'll all be there five years' time? 
I guess you know, I mean, everyone's got an opinion but no one really knows. I just look at the macro context and I don't think it's sustainable to have more fragmented, smaller scale players in an industry that is a high cost to participate and if the market's not growing. So unless New Zealand starts a breeding programme and we get a whole lot more consumers or unless we get a whole lot more businesses that are willing to advertise, then the market is what it is. So I guess I can see you'd be reluctant to think actually name ones even if I prompt you for that you think might be vulnerable but if we're looking at so there's TVNZ there's RNZ as a public organisation um, there's NZME stuff MediaWorks those big companies and Sky Television with its particular focus on that paid content all operate you say that's too much for the future We've got the same number of mass reach free to air TV channels in Australia as what you have so in New Zealand is what you have in Australia I mean, the net effect is the cost of TV advertising in New Zealand is about a third of what it is in Australia. Yeah, actually, and that's an argument Michael Anderson, the chief executive at MediaWorks, has made as well, but often to say that there shouldn't be a state-owned television broadcaster parking its tanks on his particular mm. lawn. Do you feel vulnerable in that regard? To, to me, it's not about a vulnerability for us as an organisation. I think you've got to take a market view. What would be in the best interest of New Zealand consumers and advertisers? Then what is a sustainable market structure? Um, because I don't think that you know, commercial investors will continue to invest if they can't get a return. And you know, unless you've got other benefits that you're banking as a result of being in the market, then ultimately these things will just play out. And at times we tend to, to look at everything that's changing versus the things that are not. The things that are not is that consumers will view content that they think is quality content that either informs them or entertains them. I think more and more of that is showing up in video format and we're in the informing and the entertaining business. So, so that part of it's a real positive. The challenge is how you distribute it and how you get a return on that. And the distribution, because it's fragmented and because there's more ways of doing it, it just means there's increased cost to deliver the same content to the same number of viewers. And then in the digital world, you're up against global versus local competitors who, you know, they just have the ability to commoditise the market and sustain it in a way that local players don't. Well, you mentioned making a return on investment in this kind of market is difficult, but it sounds like from what you said, the government isn't bothered about that anymore. They're saying, don't worry about a dividend, reinvest it in your business. You, you mentioned today that was an argument you made to them they more or less accepted it? Well, we think in the current market environment that there is more value to the government as the owner of the business and us investing to create a sustainable future than maximising near-term dividend yield. And, and they agree. So when you're in a world where you've got global players that are prepared to lose billions of dollars a year to build a future, then us maximising dividend yield and foregoing investment in the future feels like we're going the wrong way. What do we, the public, get out of it? Because the government only owns it on our behalf, right? But I think the value to New Zealanders of of TVNZ has always been more about the impact that we have than the financial results that we deliver. So I think on a good day, TVNZ informs New Zealanders, we entertain New Zealanders, we champion New Zealand voices, New Zealand stories. But how are we going to know as viewers, as New Zealanders, because they've let you off the hook of having to run a tight enough ship to return them some money, that it's going back into the business? What, what will we see? 
Um, what you'll see is a significant increase in investment in local content. So the mix between local and international will shift markedly towards local. You will continue to see investment in building an online future and making that content available across more devices. Um, and what you'll also see is a greater adoption of data to to actually understand what individual viewers want and, so and that that to enable advertisers to have more targeted relevant ads. So does that mean users of the on-demand service will have the, the data of their viewing habits effectively will be more closely analysed by you to direct advertising towards them? Yeah, look, in the in the next two weeks we are introducing profiles so in the on-demand world you can register as an individual rather than as a household. Then that way you can personalise the content and the favourites and the things that you want to see. It also means that as we get to know more about the individual viewers that the ads will be more relevant to people rather than things that are a distraction. But no option to not have advertising? I mean, you do it for the children on the Hey Hey platform, but what about it? On a publicly owned channel with uh, screening a lot of publicly funded programmes, shouldn't there be an ad-free option? Well, the thing we did talk to the government about was investing in the business as opposed to maximising dividend yield. What we're not asking for is is a handout. We're not asking for a subsidy. This is a commercially funded business. It is self-funded. We are committed to being self-sufficient, but to investing to to future-proof that business. But, I mean, screening local content, some of it's popular, some of it isn't. So, I mean, if you've got this goal of hitting 2 million or more New Zealanders a day... Mm-hmm. Um, could the government get you slack on that? And then maybe you could screen a broader range of content where the advertising, the commercial part of the recipe might not be so important. But in an ad-funded world, there's got to be enough critical mass for it to be economically viable. So you and I might individually think a particular show is wonderful, but unless we've got tens of thousands of others who believe the same thing as us, it's not going to be commercially viable because the cost per hour to produce local is significantly greater Mm. than to buy the rights to international. So the same number of hours will cost more money, but at the same time we know that New Zealanders love to see our own talent and to hear our own voices and to to hear our own stories. And so that's our point of difference when we're competing with global players, but also I think it's more rewarding for New Zealand viewers. And finally, um, part of this convergence, people doing things that other media companies were also doing that they never were in the past. Um, Are you likely to get into pay services at any point? Is it something you might end up doing if um, the likes of Spark services take off and others that you might get into this area too? Never say never, but it's not our top priority right now. So, you know, we are working closely with advertisers that are looking for more more use of data to give them more insight about the audiences so they can target things more effectively. We've got a great relationship with New Zealand advertisers and media agencies and that is our core strength so we're going to play to that first. We may distribute content via other players that have got a charging mechanism but I think it's a little while before we build our own because the economics are just not that sustainable for a company the size of TVNZ. That was TVNZ Chief Executive Kevin Kenrick talking to me there shortly after speaking at the Digital Convergence Symposium on the future of TV and media, held by the Telecom Users Association of New Zealand in Auckland this week. Earlier we heard from NZME's Chief Executive Michael Boggs and technology writer and analyst Sarah Putt, and you can hear more from all of them about how digitally driven convergence is changing the media, for better and for worse, in the online version of the story. Look for the title, Convergence, yesterday's buzzword, 
now the new media normal. Last Thursday, the New Zealand Herald's front page carried the stark headline, Work Deaths Spike, above a story about record numbers of deaths and injuries in the construction industry. The story began with heart-rending calls for changes from a 17-year-old Auckland apprentice who'd had to quit after being crushed by timber. But unlike others, at least he survived to tell his tale to the Herald. The same day, under the headline, Dishonoured in Death, the Herald Online reported on previously confidential details of hundreds of people whose deaths had been investigated by coroners, and these were inadvertently then made public by Archives New Zealand in a huge and unforeseen breach of privacy. And the day before that, the Herald reported the sad story of a mother in Southland who's now trying to recover the body of her son, who died unexpectedly far away in Peru. The Herald reported his sister as saying that she hoped this would bring awareness of the need to not feel ashamed to ask for help. And the Herald published helpline numbers and counselling services details at the foot of the story. So this one, like those other stories about death, was sensitively and responsibly reported by the Herald. But not so the death of a couple who died in Peru, falling accidentally from a bridge in the middle of a hug. This was captured on CCTV and then played on Peruvian television news. And taking a lead from the clickbait-driven Daily Mail online last Tuesday, the Herald reported they tragically plunged to their deaths during a passionate embrace after a night out. In the heat of passion, she sits on the bridge railing, wrapping her legs around him before losing her balance and falling backwards, taking him with her over the side. And like the Mail Online, the Herald included the TV footage from Peru in its online video labelled The Horrifying Moment Kissing Couple Plunged to Their Deaths. The link to that and a still image were on the Herald's homepage all day on Wednesday and on the website of its sister station, News Talk ZB, where it was still there in the World News section on Thursday, alongside the latest on the Hong Kong protests and demands for gun control in the US. On the Herald site, the horrifying moment video was also preceded by an ad, which, when MediaWatch clicked, was a House of Travel holiday ad for fun times in the Philippines. And after the ad, there was a warning from the NZ Herald website, which made it sound like you were going to see something sexual rather than tragic or upsetting. The following contains mature content which may be inappropriate for some viewers. But this was actually voyeuristic content posted for clicks and inappropriate for a mainstream news website, especially one currently trying to convert readers into customers for its premium content. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, the Warriors kept their NRL season alive on Friday night with a hard-earned win against the Eels. But again, the team was on the end of some pretty tough calls from the match officials. The on-field TV microphones at one point even picked up halfback Blake Green griping to the referee about bias against the sole New Zealand team in the competition. And in his words, all the bullshit they throw at us. And as it happens, that wasn't the only salty language from the Warriors inadvertently making the airwaves lately. There was more where that came from after they got thrashed by the Canberra Raiders last weekend. Sotiota started it with an early try. He finishes it with a conversion. Final score, 46-12. 
and the Sky TV cameras in the dressing room at half-time captured spectacular scenes of coach Stephen Kearney. Fairly filthy, yep. He didn't get too animated, but he's pointing and he's doing everything you would expect. He's banging his hand. He's always an angry man tonight. Sky Sport viewers even saw Stephen Kearney booting a wet towel off the floor of the sheds at the players while he was at it. And it's just as well the mic in there wasn't live, only the pictures. And afterwards, Stephen Kearney told reporters he had indeed rarely been so angry. Kearney hasn't held back in his assessment, saying he's pissed off they haven't continued their good habits. Now, you don't usually hear language like that in the news bulletins. And the morning after that, there was more where that came from. I'm not sure that they would have been too keen to chat after the game, but let's see if we can get uh, the audio of Dale Budge, our sideline eye, with Jazz Tavanga. Just give us your assessment of the game, mate. Oh, mate... It was pretty clear, you know, f- we didn't turn up tonight. And f- excuse my language. Oh, we might just leave that <laughs> there as he's, as he's using some rather colourful language. I should have pre-listened to that. And to be fair to ZB's Jason Pine there, anything recorded anywhere near the sidelines at a Warriors game lately was likely to be a bit sweary. The Warriors have had a few game-defining and even potentially season-defining calls go against them from the men in the middle lately, adding to their frustration. This week, even historic refereeing crimes against the Warriors were in the news, with more language that Stuff couldn't print in full. Former Warriors coach Mark Graham told Stuff the team once came under a racist attack from an NRL match official. As the referees left the field after a game sometime between 1999 and the year 2000, they left their mics on. In the audio, one of the officials describes a Warriors player in racial terms and words that Stuff printed beginning with B and C, though Stuff filled in the rest only with dashes. Well, that's all we have for you from the Media Watch team for this week, but we'll be back again at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show, and then back again for Media Watch at the same time next Sunday here on RNZ National.